0: And welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. And this week is week number three of our end-of-year seasonally-themed short plays. And this week's offering is a play called The Ghost of Christmas Present Imperfect, a comedy in one act by James Reynolds. Cast of characters, Scrooge. And honestly, folks, we have to have a Scrooge play, don't we? Scrooge, played by Gary Weisbrot and The Ghost of Christmas Present, played by David Rahm. The setting. Inside Scrooge's dark house on a windy Halloween, a lit candle sits on a side table next to an easy chair with a wooden cane propped up against it. At rise, Scrooge is sound asleep sitting in the easy chair, snoring away. The neighborhood church clock strikes two.
1: It's two o'clock at night. Oh <laughs> I just fell asleep in my chair again. Oh, our visitor at this hour? Uh, who goes there? Heaven is a oh, Possibly uh, uh, who's asking?
2: I am the
1: This night? Second? Well, I have been visited by no other ghost before you on this or any other night. There wasn't another ghost here tonight at 1am? Eh? No, I would have remembered. I, I don't get much company. No ghost at 1am? Eh? You're sure? Sure as sure can be. Sounds like you've left a little room for doubt. No, I haven't. I don't buy this whole ghost routine of yours. Why, well, you're not even wearing a proper ghost costume. You, you look more like some exiled king. Well, is, is that all they had left in your size at the costume shop? <laughs> <laughs> what well, some ghost you are?
0: Scrooge grabs his cane and swings it back to deliver a solid blow, and it flies out of Scrooge's grip. Noticing that nothing is in his hands, Scrooge looks back to see where the cane went.
2: Your puny mortal weapons are useless against us ghosts. We ghosts?
1: No, I'm not first on. Get us your subjective case. I'm sorry. Uh, Why do you trouble me, spirit? Who are you?
2: I am the ghost of Christmas present.
1: Christmas? But it's Halloween. i mean, it's Halloween. No, you said Christmas, but meant to say Halloween? Oh, who does that? It's been a long day. Oh, and that day is Halloween, October 31st.
2: Well, technically we're into November 1st. Now let us back in
1: Yeah, Ah, but it's still nowhere near December 24th.
2: I've seen Christmas decorations up around town. Yeah,
1: uh, decorations get put up earlier every year. Now I've already thrown out my first bar humbug of the season.
2: You have to admit,
1: it's confusing. You get Christmas and Halloween confused?
2: Well, someone did. Someone, but uh, not you. Oh, Scrooge, it's just the two of us here. I'm tired of speaking in my eerie voice. As so I was saying, someone got things confused whoever wrote up this work order. Oh, Handwriting's so bad I can barely make it out. Uh, somebody named Jack Morley. Ooh, Jacob Morley? Uh, uh, my dead partner? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is Jacob. So, anyway, Mr. Morley ordered one each. Eerie ghost visitation to Ebenezer Scrooge's house at 2 a.m. on oh, something or other Eve. Well, I couldn't make that out, but I figured from the context, it had to be all Hallow's Eve. (laughs) When else would you want a ghost but on Halloween? No one I know wants ghosts on Christmas Eve. Uh oh then? Why did you say that you were the ghost of Christmas present, eh? Because the presentation section says denounce myself as a ghost of Christmas present. That didn't make sense to me either. Maybe that's something to do with the other two ghost visitations that mine was supposed to be coordinated with. Maybe this Morley fella has a strange sense of humor. Maybe he thought it would be amusing if he couldn't figure out whether it was Christmas or Halloween and he got all flustered.
1: Some lame joke. Well, Morley had even less of a sense of humor than I did. Well, it is money. Which brings up another point. Now, Molly's been dead as a doornail for, over uh, these seven years. <laughs> Nothing's deader than a doornail. So, where did he get the money to pay you? Uh, good point. Uh,
2: maybe he did take it with him. Oh, no,
1: no, 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 no. I made sure he left behind all of what was now my money. We were partners in this thriving little commodity business. It was little, but it was just as vicious as the big boys.
2: Commodities, huh? You want a hot tip in the commodities market? Like a vision of the future, free of charge. We ghost hear things in the great beyond, you know. What did you hear? First thing tomorrow, go get in on the ground floor of the upcoming oil industry, just now taking off in America. Oil? As in
1: whale oil?
2: Well, that's been around for
1: decades. No, not whale oil. I mean the oil they get out of the earth. It's called petroleum. What you mean, that sticky black muck they sometimes run into when they're drilling for water?
2: Yeah, that. They figured out they can burn that sticky black muck in lanterns. You don't have to send sailors out on expensive whaling ships for years to get it. It's right there on land, near cities where you need it for customer use. They're drilling oil wells in Pennsylvania right as we speak. So
1: you think that this uh, petroleum oil thing will be big someday?
2: Ah. Huh? Oh. The biggest. I bet they even nickname it Big Oil. Believe me, some of the largest fortunes in history will be made in oil. Hmm.
1: No, 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 no.
2: It's in America.
1: Americans are too foolhardy when it comes to business. Look at all the money they're wasting on building railroads through thousands of miles of these empty wastelands. Now, if I was to invest in this oil of yours, I'd wind up losing everything I put into it. as Marley always said, stick with what you know. Uh, your loss. You know, look, look, now let's figure out why you're here so you can do your duty, whatever it may be. And I can get back to sleep and you can be on your way back to your haunt in goutshy on sticks or wherever you spend your off-duty hours between hauntings. Yeah. What else does your work order there say for you to do?
2: Ah, hmm. oh, here it is on the back. I am here to deliver your Christmas present. Oh, that's why I'm called a ghost, a Christmas present. That must be what this package is. Package from your loving nephew, Fred. Fred? Well, I wonder what Fred sent me. figgy pudding. Hey, 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 wh-
1: Listen here. If you're going to be rude about it, you can just take it back. All right. No
2: figgy pudding for you. I'll be gone, you vulgar apparition. But are you sure you want to pass up on your chance to get in on the ground floor a big oil? Could be the biggest Christmas present anyone ever got. Bah! Humbug! Let your American bumpkins
1: fall for that get-rich-quick scheme. Oil from the ground. Listen, I know a swindle when I hear one. The ghost shrugs
0: and exits. End of play. Just want to remind everybody that you are listening to On Stage Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is WRFI 88.1, Ithaca 91.9, Watkins Glen. Welcome back to On Stage Off Stage. I'm George Sapio, and you have been listening to a short play reading of The Ghost of Christmas Present Imperfect by playwright James Reynolds. Cast members were Gary Weisbrot as Scrooge and David Rom as the ghost of Christmas present. James was generous enough to give us a few moments of his time, and we found out some really interesting
3: stuff about him. So how long have you been writing plays? Uh, just three years. Okay, okay. I've, I've been in plays a lot longer than that, um, mostly back in the 60s and 70s. And then there was a long period of time where I didn't do anything because, you know, married life got in the way. (laughs) But now that I'm retired, I've gone back to uh, writing, which I always wanted to do, but never got around to do before. So you were an actor for many years. Actor and set designer, yeah. What kind
0: of work did you do? I mean, what were you in?
3: I'm an architect, and the old-fashioned kind, that does buildings, you know, not... uh, not the new IT kind of architect like systems architect and all the other things they okay. have.
0: Okay. So you actually built real structures.
3: Actually, um I I got a I got my degree at RPI, not too far away from you.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's uh just about halfway across the state. Rensselaer, isn't
3: it? Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh you know, they have a radio station there called WRPI, which is very close to your uh Really? Call sign.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've gotten a doppelganger somewhere in, in the mix now. So what yeah. made you start writing?
3: Well, you know, I, I just, um, I've always fooled around with stuff like this, with letters to people that I know. And uh, they always, not always, but several of them suggested that I take a shot at writing something, a novel, whatever. But uh, I kind of like the format of plays, because for one thing, they're a lot shorter than novels. And especially now that uh, the competitions, you know, kind of like yours and solicitations, I guess I should say, rather than competitions, right? Um, they very often want short plays, like 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah, that I seems they, to be
0: the new, uh, the the new motif these days. Keep them short, keep them quick, and get as many in as possible.
3: Well, yeah, I figured that's the like. Um, the you know, v- variety pack of cereal approach, you know, may, you know, probably <laughs> you'll like at least some of them. So you'll come to see uh, plays by completely unknown named authors, whereas if it was just all one night of one guy, you'd be afraid you wouldn't like it and, you know, stay away.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a good marketing technique. So in the cereal pack, do you see yourself as Rice Krispies, Frosted Flakes, Sugar Pops,
3: well, not the sugary cereals, because although I write comedies, they're kind of dark comedies, and seem to I think they have a little bit more to them under underneath so I don't know what that would be grape nuts
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like grape nuts so dark, dark comedies huh what what uh what keeps you in that realm?
3: well, I just keep getting ideas for for them um And I like to kind of throw in reality to a certain extent, you know, like I did in in the play that you read. Uh, Right. You know, it goes back and there's a little bit about the history of what was going on in capitalism in the middle (laughs) 19th century. And uh, I kind of like that there's a a bit of reality that it's clinging to. Like um, another play I've just written is called Nanotechnology is the Next Big Thing, except it's really small. And of course, I I look at a lot of these uh, science-type things on uh, TV documentaries. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you know they have a lot, of, awful lot about nanotechnology now. So uh, I wanted to use that as a theme in this one about these two people trying to corner the world market in electrical power. And uh, I also do parodies of uh, well, the usually traditional things like Shakespeare got a whole series of Shakespearean ones, such as uh, Romeo and Who'd He Get? What I do is I take, char- I take characters from Shakespeare and and kind of mix them up in a different way, and sometimes the minor characters in Shakespeare become the major characters in mine, and it's just a lot of fun to do that. For one thing, if you're doing a short play, you don't have much time for exposition. You no, know, you don't. It, so it, it helps a lot if you have characters that people are already familiar with, so you don't have to do all that explaining.
0: True. How much Shakespeare did you do back in the day? as an actor
3: uh, as an actor, yeah. I think the only one I was ever in was uh, The Tempest. I went to a lot of them.
0: <laughs> gotcha. Who did you play in The Tempest?:
3: Oh, just one of the minor courtiers, you know I was, you I was, I, that was actually the first um, play of my Shakespeare, of my freshman year. So, you know, I wasn't going to get a, a big part in that one.
0: No, you got to pay your dues before you get that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Well, plus, frankly, I wasn't all that good an actor. You know, I was reliable. I knew my lines. I didn't get in the way. You know, you got have to, have, have to have people like that in your company, too. <laughs> but uh, no, I was never really a leading man type.
0: Well, you never know. Maybe the right part just didn't come along.
3: <laughs> no, I think it's more the... You know, I'm I'm just kind of a dilettante as an actor. And I recognize there are people that have great natural ability. (laughs) And uh, they really deserve to have the leads in the show.
0: I'm of the opinion that most people who are actors who get into community uh, community, troops um, should have a shot at whatever part they feel they want to go for. I've seen actors of varying abilities in all sorts of big roles and generally the joy of the actor comes through and makes the part worthwhile trying to be
3: humble <laughs> humility is always good so but i find i really enjoy writing you know i uh, first thing i told myself was i'm just going to do this for myself because it amuses me to find how what's going to happen here and you know it's almost like the characters are coming up with interesting things to say and and (laughs) surprising me when it comes out of their mouth and i it's a in in a way it's it's a different version of what i did as an architect um so? you know well you know an architect does drawings but also you know words and specifications that uh Tell other people how to achieve what he has in his, his mind, and that's exactly what a playwright does. But the other people in this time are directors and actors and set designers and so forth.
0: True. Let me so let me, let me making, ask you about a sim a similarity. You're like the third or fourth playwright I've spoken to in a row, who's communicated to me that the characters kind of take over after a certain point. Yeah, that's true. Do you? Do you enjoy that? Do you follow them? How, how how do you deal with that sort of Oh, I twist? love it. I
3: love I love it. It to me it means that I've somehow come up with a character that has some life of its own or his own or yeah, its own. And uh it's, so that's that's just great. I mean, you've got to of course not let things get too far out of hand. I mean, sometimes well,
2: yeah.
3: a character can kind of take something and, you know, go off in a whole new direction and it's not going to end up at the ending you uh, wanted to have or needed to have. That was going to so, be my next question.
0: Have they ever done anything that you disagreed with? That, that...
3: Oh, yeah. And especially uh, uh, when, you know, they start going for the the uh, easy joke. You
2: know. True.
3: I don't, I don't like that when I see it in, in other uh, things that have been written, and so I, I shouldn't like it in my own things. But there, there's lots of easy jokes you can do, but they don't really further that particular play. Or they wouldn't be the kind of thing that character would say. It's coming you know, out of mm-hmm. some other whatever.
0: Yeah. Has, has that ever happened to you as an architect? I mean, you've been working on plans, and you've been drawing, and... Constructing, and all of a sudden, the building or the structure itself starts to tell you how to do it.
3: Uh, no, I can't say that's ever happened <laughs> <laughs> for a building.
0: <laughs> so much for the similarity between uh, architecture and playwriting. Well, okay. Well, well so so when you're desi- when you're designing a building, is that mostly you, or are you working with people from the get-go?
3: Oh, it's it's mostly it's usually other people anymore. You know, I, I worked on commercial architecture. It's not just houses and small stuff. Okay. So it would usually be a firm and they would actually often have designers per se who didn't do the the working drawings, which are, you know, all the things that, that you have to put up together to um to show how to put the building together. Right. So uh, there was a, there's a team of even architects before you get to all the other teams like engineers and contractors and so forth.
0: Do you prefer the solitude of writing as opposed to the group effort of architecture when you're creating something?
3: Well, uh, they're both, they're both interesting in different ways and for different times of my life. I think when I was younger, I preferred more group activities and now that I'm You know, old and retired, I kind of like the solitary stuff. that doesn't involve me going anywhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you've been writing for how long? Three years, you said? Three years. So how many plays have you written in that time? Because it sounds like you've got more than a few under your belt.
3: Yeah, about 20, I'd say. I've had them uh, read in places, and one performed, a short one. But uh, usually there seems to be a big uh, jump between uh just having readings of plays and anybody being willing to perform it you know that's the next thing i i need to get across
0: yes well it seems to be <laughs> a rather large hurdle to get over
3: i try to i try to make my things sim- as simple as i can to do technically because you know i don't want somebody reading the play and thinking Oh, gosh, I have to have two working guns, you know, mm-hmm. in this play? I'm not going to do that, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of playwrights are are writing specifically for inexpensive and easy production. It's It yeah, it's definitely makes you much more marketable to, you know, possible theaters.
3: Also, just not have a whole lot of scenes. Like, uh, some sometimes they read plays that have so many scenes in it, you think it's like a teleplay or a screenplay, you know, where you can jump from one thing to the other True. but then one th- just that now I'm getting into as with you you know radio plays because you can very economically skip around from one scene to another and have massive things just suggested with sound effects and it it's
0: well anytime I see a budget that says props and set pieces zero dollars I'm happy with that
3: sure why cool. not
0: absolutely
3: I mean I figure, suppose I you know think in terms of if I had to pay for all this, would I really need it that badly?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. and,
3: and that changes the, changes your viewpoint.
0: So who do you like as a playwright?
3: Uh, Chris Durang. Okay. Joe Orton, who had a short but interesting career in the 60s. He wrote What the Butler Saw.
0: Absolutely, yes. Very familiar with Joe Orton.
3: Uh, Alan Bennett. Specifically, uh, Habeas Corpus was the funniest play I was ever in.
0: <laughs> okay. I
3: played it a pastor in that one.
0: So you like uh, um, you like a little biting, witty humor.
3: Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, not a playwright per se, exactly, but Monty Python and the Marx Brothers, that kind of thing.
0: Both of them near and dear to my heart. I grew up on both of them. So what's coming up next for you?
3: I'm involved in this uh, thing here in uh, San Diego. There's a group called Out on a Limb, which every year does a kind of a year-long contest where uh, you send you send in what they call a statement of intent of the play, which is a two-page just kind of description of roughly what it's going to be about. They pick the eight best ones of those, and they let them go off and do a first draft of a one-act play, no longer than 35 pages, and then they um, couple you up with a dramaturg, and um, you know you you go on from there, and then. Then in the next stage, after those those uh, people have worked over your play, <laughs> uh, you submit another one, and they take the three best of those and perform them on stage next j- July.
0: Nice.
3: So, well, it great, and and I, I, and but oh, the theme has to be have something to do with the city of San Diego. So I came up with something just as an, out of an idle speculation. Um, uh, there's a, there's a freeway here, and there's one of the exits is called the Ted Williams Expressway, and I'm thinking, well, what does Ted Williams have to do with San Diego? So, then eventually I looked it up and found out that uh, Ted Williams, you know who that is, right? First, oh, of course, before yeah. I go sure. yeah, okay. Well, I don't know how old you are, <laughs> <laughs> old uh,
0: enough to know Ted Williams, that's for sure.
3: Okay, so anyway, he uh, was born and raised in San Diego, and he started playing minor league ball here. And, uh, you know, so he, he got a start here and then got taken up to, to Boston, but he's still thought of as a hometown kid who made good. And uh, I coupled that with, my, you know, the knowledge that everybody has, that uh, his family had his remains cryonically frozen after mm-hmm. his death.
0: Right, I heard that, yeah.
3: So I'm thinking, I'm imagining two diehard uh, San Diego Padres fans bemoaning Another losing season and so forth like that, and uh, then it com- comes on this TV in the sports bar there and that there's a Ted Williams museum. This is actually true. The, the Ted Williams National Museum is in Tampa Bay, Florida. For some unknown reason, they can't stand this, so they they try to figure out how they could get make a living monument to Ted Williams. And because they've been sitting there drinking, it, it occurs to them as a good idea that they could somehow get someone to steal the head, at least the head, of Ted Williams and uh, attach it to, you know, a body of some athletic person who died of a head trauma recently and uh, come up with, like, Ted Williams (laughs) 2.0
0: and
3: have not played Uh. for the Padres. And, you know, it proceeds from there, and I haven't figured out exactly the ending, but I think I've got a great premise
0: Sounds pretty I, interesting to me.
3: I, and yeah, and I'm, you know, even if for some reason this group doesn't like my idea, I'm definitely going to go ahead and just write it by myself. Yeah, and, and it sounds like they're plenty of material for a full-length play here, not just a one-act that they want to start with.
0: Yeah, well, every full-length play starts out as a one-act somewhere along the line. So.
3: But there again, I like the thing that it it has an idea behind it. You know, that that, that makes it right. easier to write. There's mm-hmm. something going on other than just two people sitting there bickering. You know, that's yes. that's, that's not a dramatic arc, but most people <laughs> most playwrights think it is.
0: True. Last question and then I'll let you go. Okay. Uh, how does your earlier acting career, your experience being on the stage and being in rehearsals and doing plays how does that color your playwriting? Does a lot of that crop up when you're actually writing, or do, are, are you cautioned in any way? Do you let yourself loose somehow? How does that work?
3: Well, I, I think I'm a, because of that, I'm a stickler for um, saying my lines out loud because there are some things that w- when they're typed, you can read them easily enough, but when you say them, they're, they're hard to say. And uh, I, I think I've picked up things like that in advance. And, I'm, you know, I'm very uh, open to having uh, things reworded a little bit just so they're easier to say. And I think that makes a big difference and also um, comes across more natural you know, if you do that.
0: Well, James Reynolds, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, on stage, off stage. Congratulations on your wonderful play and good luck with all your work coming up.
3: Thank you. And unlike with Scrooge, you have a happy holiday.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much.